Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello, you are very welcome to The Tonight Show. The death of a national heroine. A fearless campaigner, tributes are paid to Vicky Phelan, who has died aged just 48. Today puts a real picture on many deaths already, but I suppose Vicky's is very poignant in the loss of life, the needless loss of life. In other news tonight, a bird flu outbreak on the border. Just what does it mean for the Christmas turkey market? The Health Protection Surveillance Committee have made it clear that there, is, uh, there isn't a risk um, to human health here. The advice is, as always, to cook both chicken and, and poultry products uh, properly. And Man United considers its response after soccer star Cristiano Ronaldo's explosive TV interview. Will it mark the end of his time at Old Trafford? <laughs> betrayed and I felt that some people that don't want me here not only this year but last year too. Join the conversation as always online with your comments and your questions. It's hashtag tonight VMTV. Vicky Phelan has been remembered as a fearless campaigner who has left behind an enduring legacy through her tireless work highlighting the cervical cancer scandal. There have been warm tributes all day since Vicky's death was announced this morning at the age of 48. The mother of two first came to public prominence after she brought a high court case over how her cervical smear results were handled. Well, I'm joined on our panel tonight by Green Party TD Patrick Costello, Independent TD Verona Murphy, Irish Examiner Political Editor Daniel McConnell and Virgin Media News Correspondent Zara King. I'm also joined on Skype this evening by Vicky's friend and campaigner John Wall. Also joining us is Vicky's solicitor Keane O'Carroll and by activist and chair of Women's Aid Alva Smith. You are all very welcome to the programme. And John, as her friend, I want to come to you first because we've heard words like brave, courageous, formidable all day long in terms, of, I suppose, of how she faced her illness and how she campaigned. But what was she like away from the media, away from all of that campaigning? Vicky was uh, the most extraordinary uh, friend a person could ever wish to have. Um, I got to know Vicky about uh, three years ago um, and we connected instantaneously. She was the type of person that um, you knew if, uh, if you got on with her and she got on with you. And we talked incessantly for, for th the last three years. She was uh, the most loyal courageous, inspirational person uh, I think I've ever met and truly humbled 
and privileged to have um, been able to spend the time with her that, that I've had to get to know her, to get to know her family and uh, to be part of her life because um, she has been a huge part of mine. And uh, it's um, even th- I'm, I'm trying to come to terms with, um, with everything that has happened over the last uh, 12, 24 hours. And uh, there's a huge void, uh, Kira, a massive void for, for Vicky's family in particular. But Vicky's family and friends, she was um, such, such an influential person in all her lives. She played such a huge part in all her lives that uh, that void is, um, it's, it's very, very difficult to describe. It's, it's inquantifiable, but um, it's very real. And she knew, John, she knew from the day and the moment of her diagnosis that all she would ever get was extra time, you know, and through all of her research and trying to get through onto new trials or trying to get new drugs, that she would buy time. What sustained her through all of that? Her family, uh, her husband, Jim, her children, um, Amelia and Dara, an, an extraordinary uh, family and she absolutely idolised, adored her children and she lived uh, for them, she lived for her husband Jim, her mom and dad, her sister, her brothers and she wanted to remain on this earth for as long as absolutely humanly possible to spend as much time and reach certain milestones and she sur- surpassed um, you know, every milestone created another milestone, another and another and another. And uh, even as recently as, as last week, um, those of us that uh, knew her well, we knew that um, this would be, you know, one battle too many. Mm. So it was a question of when. But even when when it came uh, towards the end, um, you're still expecting a rebound because that's the, the nature of the, the incredible woman that uh, we're, we're talking about. She, she was described today uh, by Lorraine Walsh, a fellow cervical check um, campaigner, as a boomerang. And uh, it was a very apt description in that she kept coming back and stronger than, almost stronger than before and surprising absolutely everyone that knew her um, and wondering where she got the, the inner strength to keep doing what she was doing. And also, um, despite a, a very difficult couple of months for her, she had time for not only her family, but her friends. And that's, that's a very, it's a very, um, it's a very special thing to be part of. A very, very special. Uh, I was talking with her uh, last week and um, the conversations that, that, uh, that we had were, were, were just... It's very, very hard to describe, Kira. The, the, um, the friendship, the, 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 just the. She lets you into her life, and she had time. She always had time for those people in her life, um, and you always felt special. Yeah, it was a privilege, so. I think, to get a moment in her time, wasn't it? Uh, I just want to show viewers at home a clip from an interview we did here in Virgin Media in August 2010 where I asked her that question what was it that motivated her? I mean I have a huge um, you know motivator to get this right 
um, and you know, obviously for the women of Ireland, but it's my daughter um, that motivates me to get this done. Yeah, that was her daughter, uh, Amelia, that she was talking about there. Uh, John, stay on the line because I do want to come back to you. Uh, Danielle, we hear from her friends, those who knew her best, but what has been so obvious today is a real sense of national mourning. It's been a very genuine outpouring of grief today. It has because I think what Vicky Phelan did was, you know, she said to the state, you're not going to gag me, you're not going to shut me up. Mm. And you're not going to tell me what I can say and what I can't say about my illness, about what the state has done to me. And I think, you know, why I share with that sense of grief and that sense of loss that we, I think we all would feel, anyone who had a connection with Vicky Feeling or who met her, or, you know, I was lucky enough to interview her a number of times, you know, in my job. But that, you know, quickly has turned to, you know, we're back to that sense of anger, I think, this evening of just how the state failed her repeatedly. Um, between the misdiagnosis at the start, then to the attempt, as I said, to try and you know settle without liability, to try and subject her to a, a gagging clause or a confidentiality clause. But then you know, like on this government's watch and on the previous government's watch, like the treatment of the two two one group, the failure to kind of get the house in order to treat them properly and with respect, the the decision by officials to say we won't escalate the emails and, and the story to ministers, which I think was unforgivable. And that came out only in 2018. And she used that word, unforgivable. I mean, she did say mistakes can be made, mistakes will be made, but the conduct of those involved in this scandal, she felt was unforgivable in yeah, terms of how they handled it. And no one has been held to account for this. And what we've seen again, if people who were responsible for this, and a number of them rose to you know, significant profile during COVID-19, and none were held to account, what do we do? We seek to promote them. We seek to give them, um, you know, kind of secondments to, to leading universities. And I'm talking about the former chief medical officer, Tony Holland, who he himself defended the decision not to escalate this matter. That's unforgivable, in my view. And what you see now is the cervical check group being given the runaround by the department now continually. You see the low take-up of the, the, the survivors in, the, in terms of the, the, the compensation scheme. Well, so what you're seeing is the state, the establishment continuing to look after itself and the lessons not being learned. I just want to go back, Gazara, to that moment because we didn't know the name Vicky Phelan when she stood on those high court steps. And, and the bravery that it took when you'd been given that diagnosis and been told that your illness was terminal to say, I'm not going to go silent here. I'm not signing an NDA, a confidentiality agreement. I will not be gagged. And you have to wonder, if she hadn't taken that position, would we have ever learnt about some of the failings within cervical check? I know, Kieran, it's remarkable. We spoke about this earlier this evening in the office. I said it to you that I've been reflecting on some of the interviews that we'd all done with her. They come in from the library today and looking back on some of the conversations I'd had with Vicky. And the very first one was in April of 2018 when we were sitting in a hotel in Limerick. And I simply said to her, when did you realise that you had cancer and nobody had told you about it? And she said to me, well, I was sitting in the hospital and I was just, you know, there for an appointment and I had my file in my hand. And she said, I thought, Asher, I'll have a, I'll have a rifle through it. I mean, if Vicky Phelan hadn't been curious on that one given day and hadn't had a rifle through her own medical file, how many women in this country wouldn't have known the circumstances around their own health? So it was her curiosity from the outset. Something obviously led her to do that that day, which led to this much bigger picture. Um, but Keno Carlin, I know he's on the line, he'll probably reiterate this, said today, you know, that the fact that Vicky was determined from the outset that under no circumstances would she accept any kind of confidentiality clause because she had a feeling from the yeah, first day they met... it was instinctive almost in her, wasn't that this, it? Sure. she couldn't have been the only one. 
Yeah. Let's go to a Kane because Kane, it was to you that Vicky turned when she decided to try and take this action and trying to investigate, you know, what had happened to her smear in more detail. Um, did she have any sense? Did you have any sense when she stood outside the High Court of the magnitude of this thing that she was about to expose? No, um, n nobody did, and we. Actually, we, we recorded um, a, a series of discussions around all of this, she and I, and there are three episodes that have never been um, published which deal with exactly this, how the outcome of a medical negligence case turned into a scandal over the course of a few days and the revelations that followed. But clearly on that day, there was, uh, there was no immediate sense of it. But very quickly, things snowballed, and particularly the following day. Yeah, She achieved so much from her campaigning, whether it was the investigation by Dr Gabriel Scali or whether it was getting access to those with um, cervical cancer to the drug Pembro. Mm. But out of everything she took on, what do you think was her greatest achievement? Well, as a result of the case, um, I think the greatest achievement was getting truth and, uh, and, and uh, honesty for all of the women who had been affected. I mean, if you consider the knock-on consequences for all of those individual families, had the lid not been blown off the scandal, had the state continued to keep uh, the uh, really catastrophic failures that they were learning about um, and learning that they were the consequence of negligence, had that been kept from all of those families, Think of all the children who would not alone be left without a mother now, but really left without any understanding of what had really happened and the financial supports that come from being able to hold institutions and laboratories to account. Those are very practical um, consequences. Broader than that, well, we know that she was instrumental in the 50 steps, the 50 changes that were recommended, and most of which have been implemented now from the Scali review, which has significantly improved quality assurance that had previously been described by Dr. Scali as non-existent in cervical check, a system that he said was doomed to fail because it was so badly established, managed and run. Um, and that is going to save many lives and has already saved many lives. And through all of that time, when she was sick and very sick, she continued to encourage people to engage with the screening programme because it does save lives. Yeah, she believed she in it. She encouraged new people. She believed in it. Um, and, uh, and that beautiful clip you played there where she said her inspiration, um, her motivation through all this was Amelia. Um, uh, and Amelia was probably an icon for her of all of the women in Ireland uh, and all of our sisters, daughters, um, loved ones. Uh, and how important it is that a system not just be set up with branding so that it looks good, but that it actually has meaningful quality assurance. Yeah. And because of that, she remained committed to the, to the uh, campaign to bring screening home, to bring it back to Ireland, to stop the outsourcing, which was the original author of all of these 
uh, tragedies. Yeah. I, I feel, Keen, like today we want to talk about all of her successes, all of her achievements, her legacy, and yet I nearly feel like we'd be doing Vicky feeling a disservice if we didn't talk about the unfinished work because she made it very clear, I think, to anybody who interviewed her, when I am gone, the work must continue. You must continue to campaign without me. Well, she made it very clear to me that this day would come and when it came, there would be another opportunity to focus in on the things that she wanted done and she wanted finished. Um, and, uh, and that's why I'm not just speaking about the tremendous achievements mm-hmm. that she brought through her life, uh, which will pay a dividend to, I think, the health service and the people of Ireland uh, for some quite some time to come. But she was conscious of the fact that the job wasn't finished. And there were a couple of big things there. One was, as I said there, bringing screening home, completing that new laboratory in Ireland, which will uh, reverse the disastrous decision, uh, which was a political and financial decision in 2008 to outsource screening to the lowest bidder, whether it was in Ireland or the US, to for-profit laboratories. That's got to be fixed and reversed. And if there's any legacy there to not just Vicky, but the more than 30 other women now who have died as a result of that disastrous decision in 2008, that's got to be done. Yeah. Um, I just want to go and, back. And then, oh, sorry. Sorry to cut across you, Akeem, but I just want to go to my panel um, and to you, Verona, because the other things that she looked for was a less adversarial system for people if they have to take the health system to court and for mandatory disclosure, that if a wrong is done to you, that there is, I suppose, an onus, uh, a duty of um, truth to those who are responsible to their patients. And neither of those are really in place yet either, are they? Well, we don't see accountability at any guys in government or across these circles. But I think I spoke with Victor Boyne, Senator Victor Boyne this morning about Vicky. And that very issue came up because Victor had made a speech in the Shannon that reflected the words that Vicky had written after Kate Morrissey died, a friend of hers and a fellow campaigner. And if I can, I'd like to quote some of it because it's very pertinent. Yeah, this was sorry, this was a piece that she wrote at the Sunday Independent, Independent. about Ruth Morrissey, That's her right. friend. And it was it was after Ruth's death, and she said, I will also be dead. And I know many of the very same people who spoke about Ruth Morrissey after her death will be paying tribute to me and promising the earth, moon and stars in my honour. I'm here to tell you now, while I still can, that I don't want your apologies. I don't want your tributes. I don't want your aide-de-camp at my funeral. I don't want your broken promises. I want action. I want change. I want accountability. And I want to see it happen while I'm still alive, not after I'm dead. And after that, Victor's speech talked about the enacting the legislation which would provide mandatory open disclosure. And just briefly, Patrick, where are we at with that? Well, I don't think it's progressed anywhere near enough as it should do. You know, this is a a heartbreaking day for many. And I think, like, Vicky, I had the pleasure of the privilege of being in touch with Vicky around the Dying with Dignity legislation, something else that hasn't progressed. You know, we've seen the um, tribunal, the, the cervical check tribunal, as, as Danny says, only about 27 people have come forward to that compared to almost 400, 400 applications to the High Court. So really, we're continuing to fail on every level that Vicky asked us to, to do better on. We're continuing to fail, fail her and fail other women too. And that's the government that you're part of. 
Yes, and it is a government that I'm working in to try and help. But I, you know, part of it is calling it out when we have failed and we haven't done good enough. We haven't done enough for women like Vicky or the women of Ireland at all. And we have failed and we can do better and we must do better. Yeah. And we're not doing it well enough, nearly well enough at all. I just want to talk about, I suppose, her legacy for the women of Ireland. And I'm joined by uh, Alva Smith. Um, I think one of the things she really achieved that is part of her legacy is she emboldened women, didn't she? to ask questions, to not be passive yeah. or to be deferential when it comes to our own healthcare, which perhaps we have all been in the past. Oh, I, th I think, you know, first of all, let me say that I, I think along with everybody in the country really is mourning the loss of a woman who I think of as a real lioness. She was a person of great strength, great strength of character great determination and immense bravery because she really did take on the the sort of the might of the state and she did hold the HSE up. She took she she exposed the HSE and she grasped it by the scruff of its colour. And of course she did this, as she said herself, um, for for women and that very touching moment where she spoke about her daughter uh, Amelia that she gave voice in a very in a in a very immediate and a very powerful way to the myriad ways in which the Irish state has historically and continues sadly to to fail to fail women. And but she encouraged I women, I think, Alva, to speak up well, and to say that's not good that's enough. But that's the point, that it was that spirit of refusing to be daunted. She was dauntless, of refusing to be daunted, of standing up fearlessly and saying, I am going to challenge this state. I am going to demand honesty. I am going to demand that the truth be told. I'm going to demand the fundamental basic information that is absolutely crucial to me for my life. And she did that with this incredible uh, spirit. And also, you know, she was a woman who was of extraordinarily intelligent person who understood absolutely how to handle all kinds of situations and to express herself with yeah. great power, but also with great grace. And I think that that in itself has been enormously important for women. But I do, I do bear in mind Gabriel Scali, Dr. Gabriel Scali's point when he said that she completely changed the face of health care in this country. And the fact that the work is not yet accomplished does not actually take away in the least from her achievement. It's up to us now to carry on and to hold the state and the HSE fully okay. accountable, to okay. demand mon mandatory uh, disclosure and to stop this awful hauling of women through tribunals and courts, when in fact the HSE should stand up put its hands up, admit its desperate failures and actually do right by all of these women, all right. not just with all apologies right. and accolades, but where it really matters. Um, thank you for your contribution, Alva Smith. I want to go back to you, uh, Zara, because we talk about, you know, the legacy and the debt of gratitude that Irish women, you know, yeah. have for Vicky Phelan. And yet one of the things she said to me when I interviewed her at that time was that the majority of people who actually come up to thank her were men. Mm. And they were men who had lost yeah. wives, girlfriends, partners, mothers, mm. sisters to 
to cancer. Men of Ireland owe her a debt of gratitude too. We all do, Kira, And, you know, it was something that we were talking about today was that a lot of people don't know the private work that Vicky Phelan did and the private phone calls that she had with people. I mean, Kira, And the connections that she had totally. with people on social media. She used social media to connect with people, but she had such a great relationship with people. And actually, Keane and I were talking about this today, uh, Keane O'Carroll, and we were saying that, you know, Vicky's phone number sort of was like given out to everyone that first year in 2018 because she was so kind and she would say if someone had gotten a diagnosis or if someone had lost a wife or a loved one give them my number tell them to call me. Vicky Phelan spent hours and hours on the phone to strangers being their confidant and offering them comfort uh, particularly in the first year or two she really wasn't to the point where you know almost overwhelmed. It's that time of the year your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com herself she had so much work to do behind the scenes things that like people didn't know about that she was doing to help people she was an advocate for women um, privately who needed access to Pembro the drug trial you know she did everything she could to help people and like that as you say using social media to connect with people and keep them updated okay I just want to show one final clip um, from that interview from August 2020 where Vicky Phelan spoke about her children there are good things that have come out of having a terminal illness. They make you re- it makes you realise what's really important. You know, I mean, I was no different than anybody else, worried about stupid stuff like, uh, you know, being overweight and kind of not wanting to go somewhere because, you know, I don't look right or I don't have the right clothes. I couldn't care less anymore. I'm gone past that. You know, I just want to spend my time with my kids while I can because, unfortunately, I see that, you know, it w- there, there will be an end to it and, you know, I won't be able to do these things. So, you know, I try and pack it all in as much as I can. You know, you don't think too far ahead, you can't. Because when you start thinking too far ahead, then you know, you're, you know, well, what if I'm not there for that, you know? Uh, John, ultimately, the, the people who grieve and lose out the most in all of this are her two beloved children, Amelia and Dara. And it was at that point during the interview that, that she broke, this incredibly strong person broke. And that's incredibly sad, isn't it? It is the, the, the Vicky that people wouldn't have seen um, is that the mother. Um, the, the relationship that she had uh, with, with Dara and Amelia was incredibly special. Um, 
by virtue of, of what is happening and what was happening in her life, um, having a, a terminal illness, uh, her life was, was limited and she wanted to make the most uh, of that time that she had. Um, Dara is a, a fantastic young footballer and she took incredible pride in, in his matches on a Saturday and the goals that he scored. And he has scored a lot of them. He was talking about them um, only earlier on today. And Amelia and herself, uh, the relationship they had, they were like sisters. Um, they, were, they were cut from the same cloth and uh, a few arguments or disagreements were had, but uh, they, always, they always laughed and they, they were always um, hopping off each other. But it was, uh, it was an amazing okay. thing to see. And I, I just, I, I feel for them and my sincere condolences to Jim, Amelia, Dara and the extended uh, Phil and Kelly family. All right, look, we're going to have to... And it just said, a tenacious, adored campaigner who has strengthened the voice of women in Ireland and forever. She was. Uh, our sympathies go out to Vicky Phelan's friends and families. My thanks to Keane, to John, to Alva and Zara. Patrick, Verona and Daniel are staying with me. Next, some of the other stories making the news today. But we leave you, for the moment, with a memory of the wonderful Vicky Phelan, who died today. Welcome back. The Minister for Agriculture has assured the public that all necessary measures are being taken to contain an outbreak of bird flu or avian influenza detected in a flock of turkeys close to the border. The Department of Agriculture has put strict control measures in place, including a three kilometre protection zone around a farm in County Monaghan. The infection can cause serious disease in birds. However, the risk to humans is considered very low. Well, tonight I got the latest on that outbreak from Professor June Fanning from the Department of Agriculture's Disease Control Centre. We're only dealing with one infected premises as, as things stand. Um, so we've uh, no further suspects at this time. It's not a statement, I suppose, that um, obviously that can change. Uh, we encourage flock owners to notify the department if they've any suspicion of disease. Um, so obviously that can change at any time. But at the moment, we have no suspects that we're dealing with. Um, given the fact that wild birds are the main source of this disease, and you've said it's incredibly contagious, how difficult is it going to be to contain spread? So there are steps that all flock owners can take to mitigate the risk or to help mitigate the risk of incursion into their flock. Um, the wild birds, the virus has been circulating earlier than previous years. It's been detected from July this year, as opposed to normally the high risk period runs from October to April um, when the migratory birds arrive with the virus and then they mingle with their own wild birds and um, contaminate the environment as well. I know last season was the worst season globally ever and you mentioned that we have cases from as early as July this year, much earlier than you would expect. What are you putting those... Um, that down to? I suppose the particular strain that's circulating at the moment appears to be very contagious and it lasts in the environment longer. That oversummering appears to be due to the fact that when the migratory birds left last March and April, 
the environment remained contaminated and breeding colonies of seabirds in particular, in particular gannets around the coastline, um, were infected over the, the summer. And as such, the virus was circulating again um, without having the migratory birds have to arrive in October. Is there any risk to humans here at all, Professor? So the HPSC have um, determined that the currently circulating virus, um, HPAI, H5N1 is the strain. This particular virus is low risk to humans. So whilst it's very contagious between birds, thankfully it is low risk to humans. Now we do still advise that people do not touch dead or sick wild birds and keep their dog on a leash if they are in an area where there are dead or sick wild birds. All right, we'll leave it there. Thank you for that update. My panel is still with me, Patrick Costello, Verona Murphy and Daniel McConnell. And I know that you have concerns, Patrick, that we are not approaching this with a whole of Ireland approach. Yeah, the, the farm is right beside the border. Um, if you cross into North Ireland, there's been six outbreaks in the last year. About 85,000 birds have had to be culled in Northern Ireland. And without the protocol in place, we don't have the proper sanitary, phytosanitary checks. So I think we need to be approaching this as a whole island. The virus really doesn't care about the li a line on a map. It's the same with COVID. We need a whole island approach. And that isn't happening. I don't believe that's happening. I don't believe enough has been done to manage this in a cross-border way. And we need to be managing this in a cross-border way, just like we did with COVID, or whatever we do here will be ultimately pointless. All right, I want to move on to something else that made the headlines over the weekend that involved you, uh, the CETA agreement and the decision of the Supreme Court in relation to that. You might explain it to our viewers at home briefly, Daniel, so which I know is difficult. <clears throat> It's quite well, hard. without boring all your viewers to tears, this essentially is the, the, this major trade deal between the European Union and Canada. And ultimately, Patrick and other critics of, of CETA have basically found that, like, you know, it would rob, it would strengthen the powers of corporations against, you know, kind of regional or national governments. And it also, I suppose, weakened the hands of individual yeah, citizens against those big corporate rights. And ultimately, the case taken by Patrick tested the constitutionality of that case. And he won a very, he lost in the Supreme Court, or lost in the High Court, took an appeal to the Supreme Court uh, and won on a split split decision, which, you know, the, the court to be split in such a, a way was, was significant in itself. But this has been something that has split government quite you know, there's been quite a lot of tensions between the Green Party and Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil and, and comments by Leo Varadkar who said Patrick should pay all the legal costs if he loses this appeal and the state's costs as well. So, you know, I mean, I often refer, you know, a lot of people in Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael look at the Greens as their kind of annoying stone in their shoe, you know, and, you know, they ultimately have sought to dismiss them. I thought the manner in which this legislation was rushed through the draw in 55, it was only given 55 minutes in the draw, it wasn't deemed, it certainly wasn't um, uh, sufficient. Uh, and you know this government and has the, the Supreme Court decision supports that theory. Yeah, yeah but, but what it also says is that you know there's now room for the Eurocus to kind of get its house in order properly. But what we've seen time and time again, particularly from Fine Gael led governments over the last 11 years, is this thumbing of its nose of due process and rushing legislation through. We've seen the return of guillotining of legislation. So you mean that legislation has not been properly uh, uh, examined. And ultimately what that leads to is defective legislation and leads to ultimately court cases like this being taken in the High Court and they having to get their house in order retrospectively. Now, the Supreme Court had said in its findings, in the, in the majority findings, that legislation could be enacted By to deal with some of the difficulties yeah. within C. Yeah, so but there the Green Party and some of its members, including you, Patrick, don't want that. They want a referendum. Yeah, like so. This idea, very quickly after the decision and the uh, adjudications were announced, was, yo, are we? Do we need a referendum, or can this be held, handled by way of legislation? The government is of the view 
legislate it can be done it can be fixed by way of legislation so but there is a kind of a more formal i suppose response coming from the government in the coming days and we'll see then as to whether or not that 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 idea that legislation as opposed to a referendum will be will suffice however there's a large party yeah. of people saying that given they've been bitten once they might be well advised to follow Patrick and his uh, his colleagues in, the, in their view of things. So do you believe that legislation will be sufficient to deal with this? I think the legislation to fix it is going to be really difficult. Um, like, yes, the court have said in theory legislation can fix this. It can, it can amend the Arbitration Act. But the challenge is that when you amend that, it has just, not... Sorry, just explain to people at home the arbitration element of yes. this. Yes. So that, that the arbitration... <laughs> there are lots of existing agreements about trade and trade treaties. And if you have an argument, you go through an arbitration process of, uh, to resolve that. An argument, let's are, say, between government and or between, a multinational or between yes, another organisation. There traditionally, Ireland has been involved in arbitration things between two states. This would, this would have been a new one where it opens Ireland up to being sued by multinational companies. Previously, it would have been a row between two states. So Ireland would have picked a row with France or France would have picked a row with Germany. And it would go to this, uh, go to a process and there are huge international agreements from the UN on how that is handled. The Arbitration Act allows, puts into Irish legislation how that happens here and, and how that works here. And while you can amend that, if you amend that too much, you may step beyond what the agreement ultimate agreement was at the UN level, or you may step be outside of CETA. So you can amend Irish legislation, but are you still within the terms of the treaty you've just signed? Okay, and, but do and you, that makes it a very, very difficult process and a very difficult prospect. I do feel, though, that a referendum is the best way to go. We're talking about setting up a new court with, that will be a potential huge threat to the Irish government's ability to legislate. When we set up the International Criminal okay. Court, the Court of Appeal, we did a referendum. That's the best way to go. OK, Verona, have you concerns about this legislation and do you think it's a priority for government now to I, get this legislation in place or will they drag their feet on this? Well, I have huge concerns, just like Daniel has outlined. There's a lot of legislation and government seems to be taking a very liberal approach to what is or isn't constitutional when it comes to drafting bills. And I think anything, not just... It, this will inhibit future government's ability to legislate if this is passed in this way. And I think, you know, if in doubt, a referendum is probably the best way to go forward. I don't understand why CETA has a different system, that they're not happy with the arbitration system that's in place. But I think ultimately, you know, we're looking at things here like for the future of where we might legislate minimum wage at a level and a multinational from another country decides that we can't do that. That's the type of implication that's here for people. So we can't erode people's human right over commercial rights or vice the other way around commercial rights over what people expect their government to look after. So I think the reality is that a referendum, the courts, the Supreme Court did not say we didn't, we couldn't have a referendum. It said, mm. and I haven't read the judgment, but from what I've read is that we didn't need one. But I think to be safe, we do need one and we should have one. All right, look, we're going to have to leave that there for now. My thanks to Patrick and Verona. Daniel is staying with me. And after the break, are Ronaldo's days at Old Trafford numbered?
You're very welcome back. Manchester United have responded to comments from Cristiano Ronaldo by saying the club will consider its response when the full facts have been established. It follows an explosive talk TV interview Ronaldo gave to Piers Morgan. Since the, um, Sir Alex Ferguson left, I saw not evolution in the club. The progress was zero. How the club as Manchester United, after suck um, Ole, mm. they buy, they bring sport directive Ralph Regnick, which is something that nobody understands. This guy is, is not even a coach. Well, earlier I spoke to Miguel Delaney, chief sports writer at The Independent, about the drama. Yeah, well, I mean, we don't know for certain, but one of the theories out there today, uh, and one I suppose a lot of people can read between the lines is, it's almost trying to force the club into uh, a position, because it does feel like this is something there's no going back from. But of course, there's a great irony to this, and almost, and it kind of points to a little bit of a deluded situation that Ronaldo is in right now, where this is a guy who wanted to leave Manchester United in the summer, couldn't, not because the club uh, wouldn't sell him, because all indications are that they would have considered it, but basically because there was no willing suitor. He was offered to Chelsea. Thomas Tuchel, the Chelsea manager, never entertained the idea. Uh, we wrote in the Independent that Ronaldo was so desperate to leave that he actually was willing to drop his monumental uh, wage demands because he wanted to play in a Champions League club, wanted to kind of burnish that legacy. Um, so I think, and given there was a new manager at Manchester United, Eric Ten Hag, it created problems with the, from the off. I think Ten Hag has handled it, I must say, quite subtly, with a good bit of nuance, uh, and he's given Ronaldo plenty of chances. But after this, it's difficult to see how the club can give him a chance. And all this, of course, comes, as you say, from Ronaldo's decision. And even the, the timing from in that regard, just... There's going to be no Premier League football for six weeks, or sorry, five weeks, as we have this hugely controversial World Cup that Ronaldo again wants to use another chance to kind of to boost individual glory. Um, so there's a kind of no comeback from Manchester United. And obviously, since the interview last night, as journalists, we've been trying to chase up sources and contacts United all day. There hasn't been too much from the club, but they did release a statement around the middle of the day when they said they're, well, they want to see what the, the full facts are, although they seem pretty obvious. And after that, they'll decide what's next. And I suppose that's the big question. Uh, it doesn't sound like you have a huge amount of sympathy for Ronaldo here. Is there no truth in what is he was saying, particularly his criticism around the club, the owners, the hierarchy there? Well, look, Ronaldo is one of the greatest players of all time. Um, but that, basically, he's not the player he was. He's in a situation where it feels like he hasn't yet realised that, given his attitude to when he's left out of the team. Like, for example, when he just left, when he's supposed to go on against Tottenham Hotspur a few weeks ago. Uh, and and it, it does feel like the, the whole scenario comes from his refusal to accept where he is at this point of his, of his career. Now, there, there are, of course, a few caveats to that. He has a, he's had a difficult year. One of his infant children died. Um, I think that's, that's, he, he, he does talk about that in uh, the, fourth, or the rest of the interview that we'll see on Wednesday and Thursday. So there is a lot going on here. But and and to be fair, even within his his discussion, some of the stuff that's come out already, he talks about dysfunction at the club, which I think anyone would see he's right there. Obviously there's been such an issue with the Glazers since they took over the club in two thousand and five. 
Um, they almost haven't really been run as a football club, which is why there's been such declines since Sir Alex Ferguson retired in 2013. Um, and and it, throughout that period, basically, for those nine years, it's almost like they've always treated the, the team, or sorry, they've always treated business in terms of what serves the, uh, the, the commercial interests of Manchester United and the glamour rather than actually what works for the team. So they've made a lot of short-sighted decisions. And so Ronaldo is right in some of that. Okay. But then chief among those decisions is, is, is bringing Cristiano Ronaldo back in 2021. We'll leave it there for now. Uh, Miguel Delaney, thank you for speaking to us. Uh, Daniel McConnell is still here with me and I'm also joined by David Kavanagh from the Ballyferm at Red Devil Supporters Club. And nobody has to guess who you support, clearly a Red Devil supporter. Uh, does he have the support of the fans? Because he says in this interview that he does. I don't believe so. No, I don't think so. Basically, I think the biggest thing that uh, struck with the fans today is when he said that he doesn't respect the manager. And sure, we know through the history of down the lines, no one's bigger than the club. And once you go down that route, I'm sure he has his own reasons as well. But once you don't disrespect the manager, then um, I don't see any way back. I don't ever see him uh, wearing the shirt for us again. And that is something that I think has always been really important since Alex Ferguson's time, hasn't it? Nobody, no star, is bigger than the club. Well, this is it. He made it quite clear with Vanessa Roy, Yapstam. A lot of people didn't agree, but... Beckham. Ted Beckham. Uh, there's a couple of them there. Um, no one's bigger than the club. That's, that's the big thing. And you're going to have to make a stand now. So I, I don't see him ever playing for us again. And when you say make a stand, what does that mean? He, he'll be sacked? Is that what you expect? I... I think we'll know a bit more now when we come out with the full uh, interview, but um, he can't play for us again. Not after that. No you way. wouldn't allow him. <laughs> You'd no. boycott. Does he have the support of any of his fellow players or has he lost that support as well? I'd say he'll always have, he'll always have the support, especially the Portuguese players, Dallo, uh, Bruno. I'm sure there's a few other acolytes in there. Still a lot of people looking up to him at the moment as well. So, um, no, he'll definitely have the support for them. But... Big things happen in football and people move on quite quickly. So what's blown up now will be probably a distant memory in a couple of weeks. Um, do you think he was right or wrong, Daniel, to air his grievances with the club in this manner? 100% wrong. You don't do it. I mean, if you're a professional footballer, look at the manner in which Roy Keane left Manchester United. You know, he did it in an, you know, an interview for MUTV, which was never aired, burnt, obviously you know, disintegrated, never was, never was shown for attacking his fellow players and attacking kind of other matters in the club. And that, you know his relationship. I think Roy has defended him in this interview, hasn't he? Yeah, but I don't like. I don't think you know. You can't go out and 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 dump on your manager like this, or dump on the hierarchy like this, and expect to kind of continue in the shirt. I mean, this is an un unauthorized interview. Um, you know what I mean? And ultimately, as as was said, I think Miguel said it in his piece. You know, he's been looking and angling for a way out of the club. It's kind of the, the worst elements of Ronaldo, the strop, you know, the prima donna aspect of it all. And I just don't think, you know, he is, he's a fading player in a fading club. And I'm talking as a Man City fan who's loving this, you know, every bit of this because you know, we're watching this, you know, with glee. Um, but, you know, ultimately, you know, he cannot cannot go back to Manchester United in, with any sort of sense of credibility. Do you think that's part of the problem here, David, that this is a guy who is, I think, 37 years of age, his best days as a footballer are behind him and he's finding it difficult to come to terms with that, that he is no longer top dog, that he is no longer the first choice for any manager? Yeah, certainly. I think that uh, he certainly would be struggling with that, with the elite mentality that he carries. Um, he's looking around the changing room now thinking I'm still the best striker in the club, um, top goal scorer last year. Um, 
this season we didn't sign anyone. Marshall comes back, he's looking at him thinking I'm better than him. So, you know, why am I getting a start? So I think... Is that a fair <clears> question? <throat> Is well, it personal? Because he makes out in this interview that he's been blamed for a lot of the club's failures unfairly, that they have sort of targeted him, that they've betrayed him, that they've made him the black sheep of the club because they needed somebody to blame. Yeah, I think there's a couple of reasons why he's done this unauthorised interview. Uh, he did he did allude to that, um, you know, he was being branded by the media. That was his fault, for sure. He was probably our best player with 20-odd goals. And um, unfortunately for himself, he's looking at it as an individual. So when you look at it, uh, statistically, we are better without him. We're a quicker team and uh, he slows us down a bit. But when he looks around, he's looking at it as an individual and he's probably better than... He probably thinks he's better than the top three anyway. But he just doesn't work in the team. So. What about the comments that he made, Daniel, about sort of the, the hierarchy, the structure now within football teams, mm. particularly those in the Premier League, that if you look back at Alex Ferguson's time, it was very clear that Alex Ferguson made the decisions, he managed the teams, mm. he decided what players were bought and sold, he decided who made, you know, um, the starting um, 11. Am I right? It is 11. Yeah, 11 yeah. Um, and that that's no longer the case. Well, I think it's not the case in, in some clubs. I mean, the element of control, I mean, if you, anyone who read Alex Ferguson's autobiography, the, that element and theme of control was paramount. I mean, that was the central kind of... As long, if you lose control, if your control is threatened by anybody, you have to axe them or you're, you're done as a manager. You look at Pep Guardiola in Manchester City, he, he controls everything. There's no way, I think, you could sustainably have a disruptive influence like Cristiano Ronaldo in your, in, your, in your dressing room and continue to be your manager or be their manager. All right, Ronaldo, you're sacked. That's the verdict from the panel here. Well, that's it from us this evening. Thank you for watching. Thank you to all my guests. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms, but from all the late team here. Good night. Take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. 